HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The James Beard Foundation is a nonprofit with the mission to celebrate, nurture, and honor chefs and other leaders making America's food culture more delicious, diverse, and sustainable for everyone. And right now, it's working to respond to the dire situation the food and beverage community is in due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Restaurants, bars, and other independent food and beverage operations are often on the front lines of community revival. The majority of culinary community businesses have less than 500 employees, but collectively, this industry generates $1 trillion a year, 60 of which is pumped back into their local business communities. To help bring swift economic relief to these essential businesses, the James Beard Foundation launched a fund to provide micro-grants to independent food and beverage businesses in need. You can donate today at jamesbeard.org relief. Hello, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. First, another friendly reminder that this is an episode recorded during the COVID-19 shutdown, which means all of us at Heritage are recording our shows remotely, so if the audio quality isn't quite what it normally is, we apologize for that. Um... Honestly, I'm just really grateful that at such a difficult time for farmers and businesses, people still want to come on the show and talk about what they're doing, how they're coping, and how we're going to get the food system through all of this. So on that note, my guest today is Paul Lightfoot. Paul is the founder of Bright Farms, a company that builds hydroponic greenhouse farms that grow greens for local distribution. Paul, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Um, where are you based? Where are you calling in from? Ah, two different, uh, two different places. Uh, our, our company's uh, headquarters, what, what we call our farm support center, is in Westchester County, New York, although none of our okay. operations are there. Uh, and I, I live near there as well, but right now I'm actually calling from a, a small house in the woods in rural Berkshire County, Massachusetts, sort of getting out of the, uh, the, the epicenter of the pandemic. Ah, uh, yeah. Westchester was particularly <laughs> affected, right? Yeah, st- still is. 
So the kids. Yeah, the kids well, right. I don't know why I'm saying was like this is somehow yeah. past. My children's <laughs> school moved online, and you know, at Bright Farms, we essentially decided that nobody that was not essential to the actual production should enter our greenhouses to reduce the risks of of spread among our our workers. And so uh, people like me are, are are no longer welcome <laughs> to cross the threshold. Right. <laughs> So we're all working remotely. So I'm I'm uh, I'm as far from from crowds as I can be. That's great. Um, well, glad to hear it. So I I do want to talk to you about this moment in time and and how Bright Farms is is adjusting. But um, let's take a step back first and talk about kind of the normal stuff. Um, so for those who don't know Bright Farms, how do you explain what you do? What what is Bright Farms? Yeah, we're a company that grows salads in greenhouses. Um, for supermarkets. So it's, it's, it's like local produce on a commercial scale that you can buy at the grocery store that you might shop at normally. Right. And um, talk a little bit about the technology that you use. Um, I think you're, you're all hydroponic. Um, is that right? Yeah. So we grow, um, you know, instead of planting our, our plants in the soil in fields, we're planting them really on ponds. So the plants are growing on boards that float on ponds in um you know in a high-tech computer controlled greenhouse so we have growers that sort of determine the set points of what the environment will be that will enable the plants to thrive optimally and um you know and, and the computers then control all of the all of the inputs that determine the temperature the oxygen the carbon dioxide the humidity things like that to ensure that the plants thrive um but these are all you know uh, greenhouses so it's a controlled environment but we use the sun as the primary source of the energy for our plants. So not like vertical farming, which is in, um, you know, indoors without, without the sun getting to them. Right. So I'm sure, do you have led lights just for when there isn't enough sun, but, the, but generally you're able to just tap the sunlight. Yeah. It's not always led. Sometimes it is, but we, we, we do use artificial lighting to supplement the natural light when we need to, which is generally on a seasonal basis. So if, uh, if we didn't use them in January, February, you know, we we wouldn't have enough product to satisfy our customers. But we don't use them at all in the uh, longer day months of the year. Okay, um, and I like that you said you grow salad. That's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> so that means it's just basically all different kinds of greens. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's mostly leafy greens like maybe spinach and arugula and lettuces essentially. With, with basil thrown in as well. Okay. Um, and how many farms are there currently? We've got four so far. We've got Ohio, Virginia, Illinois, and Pennsylvania. And we are under construction shortly in uh, North Carolina. Okay. And, um, you know, you said local distribution. So what does that look like? Like how far out is each farm servicing? Yeah. So... You know, we don't generally control that. The retailers, you know, usually will receive our products at their distribution centers and they'll decide which stores to ship to. But I would say that the majority mm. of our farms are within about 100 miles of the stores that they're shipping to. In some cases, you know, it might go two or three hours, but for the most part, it's pretty it's pretty tightly in there. It's it's a, it's one market or it's a uh, or it's a tight region. You know, and, and we're generally mm. competing with products that are coming from the West Coast, from either Arizona or, or California generally. So we're often replacing, you know, thousands of food miles with with tens, in some cases, maybe one or 200. 
Right. Yeah. Especially in the winter when so much comes from pretty much all of the greens and supermarkets come from California. Um, and so you, you, most of your farms, I, so there's a lot of other companies that, um, are doing, you know, indoor hydroponic, um, farming, not a lot, but a few. Um, but most of them are in cities and I think Bright Farms, your farms are mostly located outside of cities. Is that correct? Like in more suburban areas? We drive, we drive out past where they build Home Depots and we build right after that point. (laughs) So why, like what's that, what, why that different approach compared to how some of these other companies um, are doing it? Well, you know, we, when we make decisions in general about anything, we, we, we want to apply it through several th- several lenses, right? The first is, you know, will consumers and retailers want this? The second is, does this fulfill and align with our mission of sustainability? And then the third is, is it economically a good decision? And, um, and it turns out that if you're going to ship to, let's say, 250 stores from a farm, um, then being in the city isn't much of an advantage. You, you'll all, you'll already be sort of you know making a uh, a series of deliveries that are outside of the city. Now, you know cities are never where the distribution centers are, for example, and there's no way that we can be more efficient than the retailers in in fulfilling from distribution centers to stores. And so, therefore, driving out of the city generally you know uses fewer resources, costs less, and are easier to operate. Um, you know, we, we, we will happily entertain, you know, bids from cities for us to build in them. And we have in the past, but it, it, it generally doesn't, you know, doesn't make anything better. Maybe it, it, it's a marketing benefit, but we think it's not a, a, a substantial benefit. Right. That's really interesting. I, I hadn't really thought about that aspect and certainly like delivery and shipping in cities seems like a logistical nightmare and you're kind of avoiding that. So I could see where that would be really appealing. Um, so I want to, um, before we get into to COVID, I, I did want to ask you too about um, your growing practices. So um, I noticed on um, the site that you label um, the greens as pesticide free. Um, and I know that in um, these sort of indoor farms, there's a lot that can be done to control the environment um, so that you don't need as many pesticides um, potentially. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about this kind of debate in agriculture about whether or not hydroponic produce should be certified organic um, because, you know, a lot of farmers think that soil health is a big part of the organic philosophy and that soil was in the original USDA standard. Um, but at the federal level, at least, they've kind of lost the argument. And technically, you could get certified organic. The USDA is allowing it. So I'm curious why you haven't. Like, why choose to just say we're pesticide free rather not than becoming certified? Yeah. It's a, um, so you've just opened a, a bunch of cans of worms at once. Um, and yeah. I'll, 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 <laughs> I like to do that. That's yeah, my I'll, specialty. I'll try to wade through it. You know, and the first, the first thing I'll say is that I am no opponent of the good soil movement and you know i'm a huge supporter of regenerative agriculture and of the idea of of restoring uh, healthy soil um and Uh and many of my personal um you know food purchasing choices reflect that 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 belief really i'd call it a passion 
Um, that being said, I don't think there's only one solution to solving the world's food problems. I think there's lots of solutions. And I think right. um, regenerative agriculture will hopefully go mainstream and healthy soil will be restored throughout the United States and the world. Um, and I'm going to do everything I can to help that, make that happen. Um, we also think that, you know, the way we grow is, is, is better for the environment than the way that most salads are grown in the U.S., including the organic mm-hmm. ones. You know, and, and I should say that the, the field-grown, long-distance organic salads from the West Coast are, are not generally pesticide-free. They're, they're, they're using OMRI-compliant pesticides, so they're pesticides that are allowed under the organic rules. You know, and, and, and organic certification is essentially a set of, of rules. It's a, a list of inputs. Um, and right. so now I'll answer the second part of your question, which is why don't why don't we uh, seek certification? Um, and we could, you know, we've done we've done some organic growing, um, you know, in trials to see whether we would like it. And and currently the way we operate doesn't qualify because a couple of the inputs that we use are minerals, like like iron and uh, magnesium. So they're they're okay. they're they're minerals rather than from plants or animals, and um, and so that disqualifies it. But I, I would I, I'd say to you that we're not we're not wringing our hands about this, right? We're not suffering because we don't have organic certification. We think that being local, being fresher, being better for the environment, and particularly being pesticide free, makes us equally or more attractive to organic consumers. And and that's been our experience in the marketplace. It's been what our research has shown us, and it, it you know it shows up in the consumer demand and the sales of our products. Now, if we if we did get those those minerals out of our inputs and used instead um, organic uh, certifiable inputs, what we've learned is that our yields go down and our costs go up, um, which you know which sometimes makes sense to have that experience, right? But in this case, it would mean our prices would be higher and it would mean that they'd be less accessible to consumers. And and since our mission is not to be a, a sort of a niche line of products. We're not selling fancy food to rich people. We want to sell, you know, healthy, high quality, delicious salads to Americans. We think it's important to have a, a democratization in, in our programs, including a price that most Americans can afford. And for that reason, we're not trying to operate um, under the umbrella of the organic certification, even though, as you pointed out, it is available to us. And, um, and because I can't help but wade into a political debate, I do... <laughs> I do think it's reasonable that that this method of production could be certified, um, even though we're not seeking it. I'm supportive of the idea that it's allowed mm-hmm. and, and should continue to be allowed. Um, I, I think it's really interesting that that you're saying it. You know, people will choose your products and understand. You know that for the, for the local benefit that it's fresh. Because um, I, I I think that's one of the the kind of things that people think about in this realm is that, that just the organic seal has come to be, it, you don't have to explain it, right? Like people just see it and they make a decision based on it because it's, it's easy and it's, it sort of communicates a lot of things all at once, you know, but I, it's interesting that you don't feel like not having that affects um, sales. And yeah. it is the, interesting. We, we actually think uh, about that quite a yeah. bit. So it's, 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 and you know, we're, we're never declaring that, that discussion over. It's an ongoing discussion. But the message, you know, the message of local, fresh, pesticide-free, it's landing with consumers. Like it's achieving what we need it to achieve. And so we're not we're not left wanting for for something different right now. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about how Bright Farms operations are being affected by this current moment in time. We'll be right back. During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. Okay, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Paul Lightfoot, the founder of Bright Farms. Um, We've been talking about the different farms, uh, growing methods, and um, hydroponic production. Um, So, Paul, tell me a little bit about how Bright Farms has been affected by COVID-19 so far. Well, like any, any organization in the United States or the world today, we've been affected quite a bit. Although I think our experience has been very fortunate relative to a lot of organizations. So I'll start by saying that we've been thinking about it for a long time. You know, I I began studying, you know, uh, weeks and weeks and weeks ago, what was happening to produce companies in Italy, imagining that 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 might be, you know, one of the paths that the U.S. would go down. And so far, (laughs) unfortunately, it seems to be right, at least in certain geographies. And so we definitely weren't taken off guard and we were really fast to safeguard our workforces. We recognized that food would be deemed essential in the time of this sort of a crisis and that we would be not only able to continue producing, but that it would be our societal obligation to continue producing. And that has been how it feels to us. You know, we, we wake up with a sense of purpose, which I think is, is helpful to, to weather this sort of crisis. And so, you know, at the top of the podcast, I mentioned that, uh, you know, people like me aren't allowed to enter the greenhouses anymore. Weeks and weeks ago, that was our that was our plan. You know, we, the, the Postal Service leaves the stuff outside. No one's allowed in. You know, we, we've changed the way that our workforce um, is is organized. You know, people are, are working in batches. And if one person in a batch gets sick, everybody comes out and they're replaced by a stand up standby batch. We were giving generous paid sick leave to encourage people to not come in if they're not feeling well. So our first priority is continuing to produce and deliver for, you know, our retailer partners. And we, and we consider our, our retailers to be, you know, real heroes on the front lines here because their workforce is exposed to the public in a way that ours isn't. So we're, we're doing everything we can to be as supportive as we can for them. Um, and I should, and I, I started by saying that we feel fortunate in many ways. I'm, I'm fortunate to be in the, um, in the food business. You know, I'm also fortunate to be in the controlled environment, sort of decentralized food business, because it is more resilient, and because a lot of the problems that are starting to happen with, with migrant farm labor on the West Coast, 
don't impact us. We have a, a stable year-round labor force. So that's the second way I feel very lucky. The third way I feel really lucky, and this is maybe the biggest, is that almost all of our business you know, has been with retailers um, and not in, in, in restaurants and food service. And you know, it, it turns out that the way this has impacted the world unevenly is that restaurants and food service have been devastated and retailers have seen their business go up for them. Not entirely, but, but for the most part, go up. And so in general, our, our business is, is up everywhere. It's not easy. You know, there's an amazing amount of volatility and it's difficult to forecast or predict. Um, but our, our business has become stronger in all of our locations. And I think probably in, in nearly all of our customers who are primarily retailers. So in general, for us, it's a, it's a, um, it's a fight to increase our production, to safeguard our, our capacity and capabilities you know, to wake up every day and, and keep doing everything we can to do to, to get Americans healthy, safe food. Yeah. Well, and when demand goes up and you said, you know, it's a fight to increase production, how does that happen? Like, do you have the ability to speed up or increase production? <laughs> speed up is a, is a great word. I'm going to call my head of operations and tell them that's what I want. <laughs> speed up. Speed up. <laughs> Could you make these plans grow a little faster, please? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at some level, that, that is what they think about. But, but no, so for yeah. us, we actually just opened our, our biggest greenhouse in the middle of Pennsylvania just just in January. So mm. that facility was was sort of on a, a fairly careful and methodical ramp-up plan. Um, it's uh. very, very difficult to turn on all at once. So there actually was extra capacity that, you know, probably a month ago, we just flipped the switch on and turned it on earlier than we would have, um, you know, which is a strain on our production uh forces essentially, but one that that was, you know, worth undertaking for this purpose. But there's other things we can do as well. Like we actually can shift the ratios of what plants we're growing to focus on the high yielding ones. So maybe we're growing more of a, a green leaf crunch and less of arugula because we can actually grow more of it in the same amount of space and in a in a capacity constrained world because of the demand disruption, because demand has spiked, it makes sense for us to focus on the things that yield the fastest. So we've been, we've been, you know, we have, we have sort of regular planning sessions saying, how should we change the way we operate in the face of this crisis? And one of the ways is to just keep optimizing for yield so that we can keep our, our, our customers' shelves stocked in, a, in an environment where a lot of shelves are going unstocked right now. Right. What about um, distribution? Obviously, you operate with a different distribution model compared to a lot of the sort of typical produce companies you're talking about that are shipping things all over the country. Um, does that more localized distribution, does it offer any opportunities, benefits um, in this kind of crisis situation? Yes, it does. So the the existing, or I'll call it the incumbent, you know, salad supply chain is very long and complex. You know, it's one company will be doing the growing Often a, a third company will be supplying the labor for the harvesting. Um, the product will be shipped to processing facilities, often commingled with with product from other farms, and then packed and then shipped out through distributors, you know, across the country. Um, that's that's a lot of people handling the product, a lot of people owning the product, and and when you get that sort of complexity in a supply chain, any disruptions cause cause lots of problems. And right now, you know, they were they were already transitioning from Yuma. To California, like they do every spring, which always causes issues. But then they had sort of terrible rainfall issues at the same time. And then 
they've got these shortages in migrant farm labor happening. So it's like a, a you know a, a triple whammy for the incumbent salad industry. Our supply chain is amazingly simple. You know, in our Virginia greenhouse, every day the trucks drive straight to the Ajo Del Hayes distribution centers to ship to, you know, to the giant food stores or the food line food stores, and really not much in, in terms of other places to go. That hasn't changed at all. It's it's very short. It's very simple. And when there's disruptions throughout the country or the region, it doesn't affect us at all because we're still just driving these short haul routes from one location to another location. Right. Is there anything about the model that um, is a is a risk, like that it makes it harder compared to longer supply chains? No. In fact, <laughs> no. This is a this is a period where the longer supply chains are, uh, a, you know, a real challenge, and the shorter and simpler ones are are a blessing. To be honest, yeah. No. If anything, you know, we we've. A year ago, I would have told you we were having our moment because demand was cresting, and uh, you know, and our model was was working so successfully with what I think are the nation's best food retailers. You know, Kroger, Ahold, Del Hayes, Walmart, and now it feels like this is our moment. That wasn't our moment; it just felt like it was. But now we're we're showing up, and we're we're you know we're on time and in full when really almost nobody else is. Right. Yeah. Um, so what's next for Bright Farms? Um, when this is all over, like, do, um, should we expect to see more Bright Farms produce in the future? Are you looking to open new farms? Like what's the kind of long-term plan? So we're, um, this is the third time I mentioned being fortunate, I think. This is, this is like a period in my life where I'm, I'm being pretty mindful about the things that I'm grateful for. Our biggest yeah. investor, our biggest investor is Cox Enterprises. It's a 120-year-old, uh, you know, family-owned company with 55,000 employees and 21 billion in, in revenue. It's very stable, very long-term. It weathered the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. It weathered the Great Depression, both world wars. It's, um, you know, it's got our back during this period, and with them, we are not intending to slow down our expansion plans at all. And we were pretty ambitious before this all began. Perhaps we're going to become even even more ambitious. So after North Carolina, we have a whole slate of projects we're looking to build out. And we'd essentially like to, you know, we'd like to blanket the country with with produce from Bright Farms greenhouses that's fresher, safer, cleaner, and and, and shows up on time. Hmm. Would you consider going? Um like to the West Coast too, because it, it, production so far has been really concentrated on the East Coast. And I mean, I think there's an obvious benefit to that, which is that we don't have greens here in the winter, right? But that that gets a little, that's a different conversation when it comes to the West Coast. Unequivocally, yes. Yes. Hmm. Yes. I mean, th th there are headwinds facing the salad industry that, you know, that are only being exacerbated, right? It's not just the long distance and complex supply chain. It's also, as I mentioned, the shortage of farm workers. There is a secular drought that is mm. not is no longer seasonal. It, it, it is um, there are a series of regulations that will reduce the ability of today's salad farms to get the water that they need over the next several years. Um, climate and weather volatility, of course, is increasing, which is making it difficult for them. And they haven't really shown the ability to, to solve the food safety problems that they're faced with. 
And frankly, we think we're going to be able to reach cost parity with them relatively quickly. And, and, and therefore, there's no reason that our, our products won't win even, even in their backyards. Right. Well, it sounds like you're going to be busy. <laughs> um, well, Paul, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate um, your time and your insights. My pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. Take care. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.